Welcome back to our ninth session on the Gospel of Luke. We're in the Passion narrative right now. We've looked at the Last Supper and at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now we're going to take a glance at much of the uh, Passion narrative in the trial before Pilate and in the crucifixion because we're particularly interested in hearing what Luke wants to share with us and what is unique and special. So we begin with the trial before Pilate. There has been a trial before the Sanhedrin in, the, uh, in Luke chapter 22, and they've decided to send Jesus to Rome. They want Rome to put Jesus to death. And we pick up in Luke 23 from verse 2. They come to Pilate and they, they provide a formal accusation because this is a Roman trial and Roman trial, you know, had its own jurisprudence and there were steps that you would take when you were going to bring someone to be condemned. And they began to accuse him, it says, saying, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Well, those are all distortions of things that Jesus said, but he is the Messiah and a king, just not a political king. So Pilate then proceeds with an interrogation because all Roman trials in which you present formal charges should be followed with interrogation. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so, it's as you say. Well, something about this doesn't sit right with Pilate and he comes back to the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and he says, I don't think that this guy is guilty of any crime. I find no crime in this man. And that is the first of four times that Pilate will declare Jesus innocent in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 23, verse 4, chapter 23, verse 14, and in chapter 23, verse 22, he continues um, in this trial unconvinced that Jesus is guilty of anything, but finding out that he's from the Galilee, he sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who put to death John the Baptist, who happens to be in town because it is Passover week. And so he comes to Jerusalem as well. Only Luke tells us about the, the trial before Herod Antipas. And Herod, throughout this gospel has been getting more and more curious about who Jesus is and he's been worried that this could be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Is Jesus going to try to get him? What's going to happen? But he's heard that Jesus is a miracle worker. When Jesus appears before him, Herod demands a miracle and Jesus refuses. So he has his soldiers mock him and torture him. Torture being thought to help elicit truthful answers out of people in the first century. That's why the Romans are so big on torture. And Herod follows suit and has Jesus tortured. But Jesus says nothing. We have this very ironic statement that Luke makes in chapter 23, verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been in enmity with each other. United against the purposes of God, they become brothers in rejecting Jesus the Messiah. Uh, as the trial continues, Jesus is once again declared innocent by Pilate. And then 
Pilate's next stratagem to free himself of the burden of putting an innocent man to death is to make a trade, to trade Jesus for some other criminal who might be released at the time of Passover. And of course, the crowd cries out, give us Barabbas. Now there's irony that Barabbas' name is Bar-Abbas, which means son of the father. And there's even greater irony in the fact that Jesus is on trial for insurrection, for being uh, a false king, a political rival to Rome. The man who is being released, Barabbas, actually is a zealot, an insurrectionist. He is a person who wants to overthrow Rome. So the innocent man is going to the cross, and the man who is actually guilty of the charge is being set free. Pilate is mystified. He finds no crime in him, but he finally concedes and sends Jesus to his crucifixion. He gives in to their demands in chapter 23, verses 24 to 25. When we look at the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that they have different views about who is at fault. In Mark, Pilate appeases the crowd and was responsible for Jesus' death. In Matthew, the mob is egged on by the chief priests and the elders, and they accept the blame. Pilate washes his hands. He feels powerless. In Luke, Satan is the force behind the plot. He has used Judas as his tool, and he has used Rome. These are the instruments of Satan in attempting to put to death the light of the world. So Jesus picks up his cross. He receives aid from Simon of Cyrene. He encounters on his way people who are faithful, people who are sympathetic. The daughters of Jerusalem weep for him in chapter 26, verses 26 to 32. But Jesus says, don't cry for me. Weep for yourselves. Destruction is coming to this city. And the mountains, you will pray that the mountains will fall on you, us and that the hills will cover us because if, they, if you do this to the innocent man at this time, what will happen in the future when you really need God's mercy? So we have, we have Jesus, a man of composure as he goes to the cross in the Gospel of Luke. A man who responds to those around him, who gives them perspective, and even who warns the women as he approaches the cross that they need to watch out for their own welfare, choose life. So they come to Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. Golgotha is really a landmark. It's a, a rock that is shaped like a skull. But the crucifixion probably doesn't happen on top of the rock. It happens at ground level. It was the practice of the Romans to crucify people on the roads leading into the cities. And Jesus is crucified at ground level so that people will be deterred from becoming rebels against Rome. This is the strategy of the Romans, and it's a brutal one. And of course, he's crucified with two other criminals, one on his left and one on his right. Does Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke? No. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The struggle for Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he goes to the cross, Jesus has absolute perspective on what is happening. I don't know if you ever saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Messiah. No, The Passion of the Christ. The Passion of the Christ is the title. But in that movie, Jesus says this prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, as the first nail goes into his hand. It's, it's tremendously moving, tremendously profound, as he enters into this terrible pain, this pain of his death. He has the presence of mind and spirit in this this godly perspective to cry out that God forgive them because they're acting in ignorance. As Luke continues, uh, while Jesus is praying for forgiveness for them, as Luke uh, continues, people stand by, the elders scoff at him, and the two thieves on either side have a dialogue. And one of them, laughs at him and says, well, you are not the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, you would just get down off the cross. And the other one says, you fool, don't you fear God? This man is innocent. He's not like us. We're truly criminals. We deserve to die. He doesn't deserve to die. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, I know you're innocent. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, I, I mean, I can't imagine. He's hanging on the cross. He's been tortured. He's in physical pain. But Jesus on the cross in the Gospel of Luke is still extending mercy to those who cry out for forgiveness. He says, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Luke's conception of Jesus, this this reflection of God's heart, this loving, forgiving, innocent man who shows mercy in his time of greatest trial is extraordinary. At about the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And when the sun's lights failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now that's pretty extraordinary. I don't know if you've ever been with someone who passed away, but you actually can't control when you breathe your last. The human experience is that it's a long process, and it happens when it happens. But hanging on a cross there, you don't have control over when you stop breathing. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is so one with the will of the Father, so in tune to his purposes, that he can know the moment that it will happen. He hands over his spirit to the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he releases his spirit to God. Extraordinary. we come to something so interesting in the Gospel of Luke as we look at the Passion narrative here. Remember the centurion, the centurion who is standing by watching. We met him when we studied Matthew and when we studied Mark. 
And in those Gospels, as he sees Jesus die, the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. Something about how he died, how he endured his suffering, how he ex experienced this as an innocent man, reveals to the centurion in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus was very unique, truly the Son of God. In the Gospel of Matthew, well, we don't just have Jesus dying on the cross, but we have earthquakes and stones being rolled away from tombs and dead people rising, although they don't come out until Jesus himself is risen from the dead. We have phenomenon. We have cosmic phenomenon that make you think that this is something very big. But what does the centurion say in the Gospel of Luke? Rome's representative, standing at the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus die, says, He praised God and he said, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who assembled to see the sight when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. Certainly this man was innocent. That's very different than saying certainly he was the Son of God, but it points to part of the thrust of Luke's Gospel. Jesus was innocent of any crime against Rome. Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow Caesar. Jesus is not a pretender to any throne. And as the centurion praises God, just as we see in Matthew and Mark, we see this man being drawn being drawn to faith in Jesus, we see a first fruit among the Gentiles. The first Gentile to witness the execution of Jesus sees it, sees Jesus dying on the cross, which is like, you know, somebody being electrocuted in the electric chair. I mean, it's so graphic and horrible. And they see it and they are drawn to the God of Israel. So the first fruits happen already in the life of the centurion and we see repentance beginning to happen. Those who witness go home beating their breasts and mourning for the loss of Jesus, for his execution and his crucifixion. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from the Galilee stood at a distance and saw these things. What happens next? The women who have followed from the Galilee are his chain of unbroken witnesses and they retreat. They retreat to whatever house it is that they're staying in in Jerusalem because of course Jerusalem is not their home. They've rented a place to stay. They hide away for the, um, for the weekend and the women go and they see how Jesus is buried. You remember Joseph of Arimathea Joseph of Arimathea, we find out, is a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a good and a righteous man, and he had not consented to their purpose and deed. And he is moved by Jesus' death. He's moved by his execution. And he acts positively by giving his grave to the people of their family of Jesus, the women, for Jesus to be buried. So he went to Pilate and he demanded the body of Jesus and he wrapped it in a shroud and laid it in the tomb and the women saw where Jesus was laid. 
Again, the death of Jesus is already engendering power, power for people to act in support of Jesus, power for people who are repentant, power for the centurion to come to faith. He's not a disciple, but he's part of those pious people within Israel like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna. And he lays Jesus in the grave and rolls the tomb, the stone over the entrance to the tomb. And it's the day of preparation and the Sabbath is beginning. So it's Friday afternoon, Shabbat is about to begin. And the women are the witness to where he was laid. Well, of course, you know what happens. Sunday morning, Luke 24, the women arise before dawn and they go to the tomb taking the spices which they had prepared. There was no time to properly prepare Jesus for burial. It was customary to uh, surround a body with spices and flowers and different kinds of things to prepare them for the world to come. But they came and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they didn't find the body. And they were perplexed about this, and two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in the Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. It's as though this is the first connection in the community of disciples with that prediction that Jesus had given already in the gospel three times. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Jesus predicts his death three times. And it's only when they're at the tomb and they meet the women that suddenly they remember that this is what Jesus said would happen. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told this to the leaven and all of the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women who were with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale and they did not believe them. <sighs> they sounded like crazy talk. You know what they say in the Gospel of Matthew. They start a rumor that the disciples came and stole the body and they hid it somewhere so that they could say he had risen from the dead. It was so hard for people to believe. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by himself and he went home wondering what had happened. So the women bring the, bring the um, message. The apostles don't believe it. Peter takes a look, but they have no explanation. And then we come to the two resurrection accounts that are unique to Luke's gospel, that provide the conclusion of his gospel. In Luke chapter 24, we have Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. So that very same day, the day of the resurrection, Two were walking from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so when you come to Jerusalem, of course, you love to go find Emmaus. And Jesus just happens to join them as they're walking. They don't recognize him. Their eyes are closed. He's dead. He looks different when he appears. 
who is this? How would they know each other? And so he just says, well, guys, what were you talking about? And they say, well, how could you not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? This was the worst weekend of our whole lives. How do you not know? And so they explain to him that Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and the people, and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since it happened. And then these ladies came this morning and they said the tomb was empty and they saw angels and that he rose from the dead. And we found it as they said when we went to look in the tomb, but we did not see Jesus anywhere. And Jesus chides them. O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Don't you understand the prophets? Don't you understand Isaiah's suffering servant, Isaiah 52 to 53? Don't you understand that it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer all of these things to enter into his glory? And so beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures concerning himself. And as they drew near to the village, he would go on and they said, no, no, stay with us. It's evening. And he sat at table with them and he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and he shared it with them. Now that's the language of the Last Supper. That's the language of the feeding of the 5,000. When he blessed and broke the bread, their eyes were open. In the celebration of the breaking of bread, the believers find Jesus. I don't know if sometimes we take seriously enough what the meaning of the Lord's Supper is supposed to be for us. It's not just about having a little piece of matzah and a sip of wine. We are supposed to reflect and to encounter the risen Lord. We remember his death. We celebrate his life within us and we look forward to his second coming. In that meal, we are supposed to somehow encounter the risen Lord. Our eyes are supposed to be open. And this story of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus with Jesus shows that it is in study of the scripture. He opened their minds to understand the prophets and Moses. And they found him and recognized him in the breaking of the bread. That is how the community of Jesus will encounter him. As the chapter continues in Luke 24, 36, or we can, let's see, I'm going to make sure I'm at the right spot. Luke 24, 44 to 53, he meets with the disciples and he says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Stay in the city. I will send the promise of my Father. You will be clothed with power from on high. When we read this story about Jesus and his immediate disciples, 
after his resurrection, as he spent those 40 days with them, Luke is not simply telling us about what they experienced, but he's telling us the whole process of what the church had to go through, how they had to rethink their Old Testament, whether they read it in Greek or whether they read it in Hebrew, how they had to re-read it and understand it in a new way in light of the event of Jesus as the Messiah. They had to learn to set aside all their incorrect presuppositions and interpretations. Having read these scriptures all their lives, they read a lot of things wrong. And they had to begin with the event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and look at how the scripture anticipated it, foretold it, and prophesied it. Jesus' interpretation becomes the authoritative interpretation for the early church. We see this process of searching the scriptures to understand Jesus carried on in the Acts of the Apostles. As we've mentioned before, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when those tongues of fire appear and the wind blows and Peter comes out and says, oh, well, this is what Joel is talking about. I don't think any of us think that Peter and his friends used to sit around, read Joel chapter 2 and say, well, there'll be wind and there'll be fire and we'll talk in other tongues. No, it's after the event that the scripture becomes meaningful and is interpreted. When, um, when Paul meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and he is reading Isaiah 52 to 53. He says to the eunuch, do you know, do you understand what you're reading about? <laughs> and no, the Ethiopian eunuch says, I don't have a clue. And he says to him, well, let me tell you what our community understands. We, the followers of Jesus, now understand that that suffering servant of Isaiah 52 to 53 speaks of the Messiah. Not just, it's not talking about all the people of Israel, but it's talking about a very specific person who was chastised for us, who bore our griefs, whose, by whose stripes we are healed. But they had to search scripture to understand it. They didn't understand it before the fact. These scriptures came alive. It was as though a new job assignment was given. We become the beneficiaries of the hard work of the earliest followers of Jesus of people like Matthew and Mark and Luke, who in their Gospels preserve for us the, the interpretation, the correct way to read the Hebrew Bible in light of Jesus. They figured it out for us. Who is the prophet like Moses of Deuteronomy 18.15? It's Jesus. People didn't know it. They didn't really get it during his lifetime. But after the fact, they could say, Surely the prophet like Moses is Jesus. Who is greater than Solomon? It's Jesus. And we learn from their interpretation. There's still more to learn. There's lots in the Hebrew Bible that hasn't been fulfilled yet. There's lots in the New Testament that hasn't been fulfilled yet. But I always think a word of caution is to remember what happened in the church. <laughs> they had most of it wrong until after Jesus came and the events transpired, and then the Holy Spirit opened their minds to understand the scripture. So I don't think we need to worry too much about predictive prophecy. Jesus certainly said to us, 
It's not yours to know the hour or the day, only my Father's who is in heaven. Your job is to preach the good news to the poor, to comfort those who mourn, to lighten the load of the oppressed, to share my love with each person, to help everyone know that they're made in the image of God and that God has a destiny for them, whether they're Jewish or whether they're Gentile. That's what he calls us to do. Our judgment is gonna be based on how we loved one another, how we cared for the least of his brethren, not on whether we got predictive prophecy right. That's not his highest goal for us. And so these gospels speak to us and it's a lifelong process to study them. They belong to us. There are wonderful resources available. Doing the job of the Synoptic Gospels and looking at the Gospels side and side, side by side, just brings out so much insight, so much nuance, and helps us to understand the communities that produce these Gospels. Different Gospels speak to us in different ways. And so I just want to bless you with the understanding that these Gospels belong to you. They're a gift. And don't forget to include John. Study them, read them, look for resources, be in touch with the Center for Judaic Christian Studies because they can guide you to, to tremendous bibliography which will help you in your studies. And it's never too late to start. Get a good book like a Synoptic Gospels that you can make notes in. You can write all over it. You can highlight, you can underline, you can color and just dig in deep. Jesus is there. He is the Word of God. The Scripture is the Word about the Word. And the Word of God wants to have a relationship with you. Thank you for joining us in this series.